Revelation chapter 10, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is, in, that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Then I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, again, man does not live by bread alone or by a scroll, right? But by the word of God uh, that stands forever. Well, this chapter, if you haven't been here for our whole uh, time in Revelation, and I, I know everybody hasn't, chapter 10, we're almost halfway through the book. Uh, chapter 10 serves as kind of an, in, an intermission or an interlude or a break in the action from what's been going on. In chapters 8 and 9, the two previous chapters kind of giving you a review, and chapters 8 and 9 were the sounding of the first six of seven trumpets. And so you would naturally expect, if you hadn't read the book before, if this was a new book to you, of course, the next thing you would think is going to happen is the seventh and final trumpet, but it's not what you have. You have kind of an extended break, kind of a, almost like a timeout from chapter 10, verse 1 to the middle of chapter 11. You don't hear about the seventh trumpet being blown until Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Now, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll know that this this break in the action is not the first one we've seen. Chapter 7, the same thing was true in, in chapter 7. You saw there, you saw, remember, the, the Lamb of God, who was the only one found worthy to open the seven, the seven seals on that scroll that was in God's hand, uh, not the same scroll as this, and, and he would break every one of those seals and things would happen. And then before he opened the sixth seal, there was a break, and that was chapter chapter 7. And that chapter... Uh, seven it included uh, maybe what we might think of as a strange-sounding uh, vision, or really two visions. One was that sealing of the 144,000. It's one of those passages that has been variously uh, interpreted, explained, and misinterpreted, and misexplained, and misunderstood throughout the years. And then the second half of that chapter, it, it includes that great multitude in heaven before the throne that no one could number from every nation, tribe, language, uh, and people worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. Now, those two, that two-part vision in chapter 7, that break in the action that we saw before, 
That break in the action was intended for the comfort and the reassurance of God's people. Specifically, God's people reading this book. There's a lot of things in those seven seals when they're broken that were kind of disturbing to read. They might even be frightening to us because they're hard to understand. Uh, A lot of these things were the judgments of God poured out on the earth. And so you have that vision of the sealing of the 144,000 that, um, what is, what was the point of that? Why does God give us that vision in chapter seven of the sealing of the 144,000? And it was even, it was even mentioned, uh, that they were from each tribe. It named the different tribes. Each tribe had 12,000 people, uh, sealed from it. Now those visions are given to comfort the suffering and persecuted church by teaching us by means of those symbols in those visions, first about the security of the church militant on this earth. Now, that might be a phrase you're not familiar with, but what's the church militant? You are. We are. The the church on earth, God's people on this earth in this life, are the church militant. We're the ones that are still in the fight. Um, And so that vision of the sealing of the 144,000 um, is is meant to teach us the security of the church militant, the security of our salvation in Christ, because we live in a world where our witness to Christ and the word of God is often met with hostility and persecution, even martyrdom, as we've seen in, in previous chapters, not to mention throughout the history of the church. And so that ceiling of the 144,000, you know, that 144,000 of, of each tribe, it's a military picture. It's a, it's a, it's a numbering of the armies of the people of God in, in, in a symbolic form. And it's meant to show us that we're sealed. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch our salvation. No matter how much the world might oppose his Christ's church, no matter how, how often and how badly the, the world persecutes God's people, to use Paul's words from Romans 8, we are more than what? We don't just survive. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. And not only that, uh, nothing in all creation, to use his words from the, the very next two verses in Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's really what that vision is meant to teach us in different words and different ways through symbols in that vision. Not only that, but that vision of the great multitude in heaven. Think about the persecuted church in the first century that, that got the book of Revelation for the first time. They didn't feel much like conquerors. If anything, they felt like a scattered band of little flocks being persecuted and chased and even martyred for the faith. They, they faced persecution from the outside. They faced division and heresy from the inside and all kinds of things. And yet, what is that great multitude in heaven that no one can number, teach them and teach us. None of those things will stop the gospel's conquest. None of those things will keep disciples from being made. The fact that there's going to be a great multitude in heaven that no one can number, Revelation 7, 9, assures you and I and has always assured the church that our witness to the gospel of Christ, no matter how much it's opposed, will not be in vain will not be in vain. By the grace of God, many, many countless sinners will not only hear the gospel of Christ, but will believe unto salvation and eternal life. That great multitude of the redeemed in heaven reminds us, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, why why does Paul say he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Because it is the 
power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I don't know if you've heard of the, the phrase, the Roman road, but it seems like in a lot of ways the scripture message, all roads seem to lead back to the Roman road, the gospel as it's taught in the book of, of Romans. Now this break in chapter 10 that we're seeing here, I think serves a similar, not the exact same purpose, but a similar purpose. Now it gives us a chance to kind of catch our breath after seeing all these visions of, of judgment uh, in the previous chapter. Um, it also gives us uh, a hint as to the structure of the book. You know, there are, there are, uh, you've heard the phrase, I don't want to know where it came from, there's many ways to skin a cat, you know, kind of thing. Well, there's, there's many ways to, to understand the, the outline and the flow of the book of Revelation. Some helpful, some less helpful than others. Um, but this one I think points us to, it's a hint at the structure of the book that it is cyclical in nature. That it's not, from point A to point B, from chapter 1 to chapter 22, although there is a flow to that too, but that some of the things it shows are repeated and are meant to to tell us uh, from a different angle the same span of time, which is really the whole history of the church, the whole history of the work of the gospel in this age. In other words, this pattern of sevens that you see in the book, remember that's the number you see over and over again, in Revelation, you have three particular sets of seven. You have first the seven seals of that scroll in the hand of God that only the Lamb of God was able to open and worthy to open. And then you have seven trumpets that we're in the middle of looking at right now. And then later on in the book, uh, soon to come, you're going to see seven bowls of wrath. And it's it's tempting to look at those as chronologically sequenced. That first you have the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls. They're really telling the same thing in a cyclical nature, in a cyclical manner. These cycles of seven, uh, interrupted by these breaks in the action, I think serve as a hint that these things aren't to be viewed as one following upon the other necessarily in a chronological way, but they're to be viewed as, as going in a cycle, even going over the same ground or same span of time in history, maybe from a different perspective with a different purpose in mind, and each one increases in intensity. The, the seals, things, God's judgments are poured out on, on the earth. Uh, and then when you have the trumpets, judgments are again poured out on the earth, but they get worse. And in the seven bowls of wrath, the same can be said. William Mounts, in his commentary, writes this. He says, each numbered series moves us closer to the end, not so much because it follows the preceding series in sequence, but because it heightens and intensifies the final and climactic confrontation of God and the forces of evil. There's a progress in these cycles, but it's not necessarily from one to the next, a chronological progress. It's more uh, intensification is what he speaks of. Well, most importantly, you know, I know that maybe you find these things about the structure of the book interesting. I hope that this a sermon should be more than interesting and more than informative, but the most important thing about this break in the action, I think, here in our text, in chapter 10, is that it serves to, to emphasize uh, the importance of the mission and witness of the church. Even in the face of severe persecution and affliction and opposition. I think that's, that's the point of this whole section, chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11, that we'll look at next time, Lord willing, 
as well. In view of the coming wrath of God against all wickedness and unbelief, we must be faithful to our calling as, as Christians to hold forth the word of life to a lost and dying world. That word of life is only found in the gospel of Christ. I think that's what this particular time out is meant to emphasize for us. Our, our task, your task and mine, of testifying to the gospel of Christ, it's a theme you find throughout Revelation, not just in this chapter. But it's certainly the main point or the main emphasis in this section in chapter 10 and even into chapter 11. Now this morning, uh, hopefully we're going to see at least three things from our text. The first thing we're going to see that John tells us about is this mighty angel. The second thing we're going to look at is the little book or the little scroll. And the third thing we're going to see is the, the divine commission. You can think of these, if it helps you remember it, as the ABCs of chapter 10, of Revelation 10. An angel, a book, and a commission. The ABCs of Revelation 10. The first thing is the mighty angel. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. That's a vision. That's a pretty impressive sounding vision. Now, scholars, commentators are kind of divided on who this is and what this angel was meant to point to in John's vision. Some say that, well, this is some kind of an an archangel or archangel of some kind, maybe Gabriel or Michael or some such being. Um, some say that one of these, that this mighty angel actually represents the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There, there's not a lot of agreement on this particular thing. Now, when I first was preparing for this sermon and reading the text and translating and studying and, and all these things, my first inclination was that it's not Jesus. And my first thought was because it, it describes him as another Mighty angel. I got hung up on the word another. You might get hung up on the word angel, but I was hung up on the word another because when you read the first, you know, five chapters or so, half the point is that Jesus is preeminent over everything. He isn't someone that can be classed in, in, in a class with someone else. He is a class by himself. He is a, an entirely a class unto himself as the Son of God incarnate. As, as the Messiah, as the Lord of all things, given all authority over heaven and earth and everything in it, as head over all things to the church. And so I thought another mighty angel would seem to, you know, put him in a class with some other mighty angels, and so it couldn't be him. And, of course, Jesus Christ is not a mere angel, as powerful and impressive as an angel might be to us if we were to see one. Uh, they don't compare to Jesus. No one compares to Jesus, read the opening chapters of the book of Hebrews and you'll see that ex- exact thing mentioned. Jesus is not a mere angel. Now the scriptures, you might know, uh, and also in Revelation, you're going to see that phrase mighty angel two other times, back in chapter 5, verse 2, and later on again in chapter 18, verse 21. So it's not the only time you'll see that phrase. But you might might be interested to know that the scriptures actually speak of Christ in a sense by using the word angel uh, elsewhere. Also note that the word angel in the scriptures has different uses 
different meanings. We saw back in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3, there, what were the angels of the churches? It was the word angel. And what was it referring to? Who were the angels of the churches? Were they actual powerful angelic beings? No, they were referring to the, the, the pastors of the churches. Because what does the word angel mean? It means messenger. And very often, the messengers the Bible talks about are powerful heavenly beings, the angels, but it's not the only way that word is used. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 actually prophesies of Christ who was then to come and calls him an angel. Uses the exact same word, uh, the, the common Hebrew word for angel. There, Malachi, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now that word messenger found twice there. If you were to look at the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of that Hebrew, uh, it uses the word, the word for angel, angelos. It even sounds like the English word. We get the English word from it. And so Malachi is saying that the Lord Jesus, the Lord who he uses the word Adonai there, he speaks of him literally as the angel of the covenant. He's not saying that he was going to be a literal angel, but he uses that, that same phrase. And so, you know, look at the way also that this mighty angel or mighty messenger is described by John here in our text. If you know that, that vision, if you're familiar with the vision in chapter 1, that amazing vision of the glorified Christ that John speaks of in chapter 1, this is very similar. There, too, in chapter 1, Jesus Christ, uh, the risen and ascended Christ, was described by John as having a face that was, quote, was like the sun shining in full strength. What does he describe him as here? A face like the sun. There, too, his voice is compared to the roar of many waters, Revelation 1.15 uh, not only there, but here in our text, his loud voice was, quote, like a lion roaring. Remember in chapter 5, well, what is Jesus referred to as? The lion of the tribe of Judah. John is using those same words here, those same pictures and phrases to describe this mighty angel that he saw. And as if that wasn't enough, look at the way he's described. It says that he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, if you go to the beach, you could do that. You could put your right foot in the water and your left foot like the hokey pokey, you know, on the sand. That's not what he's talking about. He's not picturing like we would think, like us, somebody just straddling the, the water line. He's talking about this mighty angel being so large that his one foot was on the ocean and his other foot is on the continent, on the land. That's, it's a picture. It's hard to even Mentally, you almost have to kind of crane your neck to, to look back and see what John is, is describing here. You know, think, think about that. It's not without reason uh, that this is supposed to get our attention. In fact, three times in this short chapter, this mighty angel is described as having one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. It's as if we, it's as if the Holy Spirit thinks we're not going to get the point. So he puts it in there three different times. Uh, this angel is a colossus. This angel is a giant that John strains to even look up and, and see in this vision. And Joel Beakey writes this, The Lord Jesus, this is the point of the vision, I think, The Lord Jesus towers above this rebel world, planting one foot upon the land and the other upon the sea, 
to show that all the nations of the earth are subject to him. It's, you know, we think about planting a flag and claiming ownership. Jesus has got one foot on both the sea and the land to show uh, he is in control and ownership of those things. And isn't that the picture John is painting here with his words? This mighty angel who is either a vision of, or a symbol of the glorified Christ who reigns over all things for his church, or at the very least, if this isn't meant to be taken as Christ himself, this angel was to be taken as so closely associated with Christ as to represent him and be identified with him. And this angel, in, in the words here, it kind of fills our whole field of vision. You know, you, you think about him almost blocking out the sun because he's so big. It reminds me of, uh, of that vision in Isaiah chapter 6, which John tells us was a vision of Christ. Isaiah chapter 6, what did Isaiah talk about? He said that he saw the Lord, verse 1. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne in, in a vision, and he says he was, quote, high and lifted up. And then what does he add about his robe? The train of his robe, you know, the, the back part of the robe that hangs on the bottom, filled the temple. How big was this vision of Christ? It's not without reason that John's knees knocked and the, and the thresholds of the temple were shaking. His, his vision of Christ was gigantic. This vision of the Lord, lofty and exalted. It, it was, to say the least, a very impressive vision of Christ. And I think that's what's going on here in Revelation 10. John is having a similar, not the same, but a similar vision of the risen and ascended and reigning and glorified Christ. And so... When the church militant is struggling, suffering hardship and persecution and opposition, we need to be reminded of the greatness of our God and Savior, even of the infinite majesty of Jesus Christ. I think that's the point of this, of this vision, of this part of John's vision. After all these things where the, the trumpets are sounding and these judgments, awful judgments are coming down on the earth, we're reminded of who's in control, who is all-powerful, and mighty to save. Who is the one who is sovereign over all these things, even over all these judgments? Our enemies, the enemies of Christ's church, are nothing in his sight. They look big to us. They scare us. They impress us. They make our knees shake, but they're nothing to him. Psalm 2 talks about the wicked gathering together or counseling together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. What is his reaction? Oh no. But what is the Lord's reaction? It says, He who sits in the heavens, reminds us of who he is, laughs. He laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision. You know, our weaknesses, not just our enemies, but our own weaknesses, the smallness of our strength, the smallness of our resources, present no obstacle for him. Somebody this morning was talking to me and, and reminding me, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need uh, any of those things to do and accomplish his purposes. He chooses to use us. He could do a lot better, but he doesn't, he doesn't choose to do that. He chooses to use people like us anyway. Our weaknesses, the smallness of our strength, cannot hinder or prevent his purposes from coming to pass. Think about the story of Gideon. Gideon, what was Gideon, Gideon? I forget the numbers, forgive me, the numbers of his soldiers, but they were in the thousands. And what did, what did the Lord say to him, basically? You have too many guys. Your army is too big. 
Gideon probably didn't think that at all. Gideon probably thought, maybe God's going to give me some more soldiers. And God says, no, paraphrasing again, let's whittle this down from tens of thousands to thousands to 300. The original 300. God, God delivered his people through that little small band of 300 men. And he didn't need to use any of them. And the good news is that's the same God that you and I serve today. God does not change. Jesus can work through 12, you could say minus one, Judas, and turn the world upside down. And he can use even a small church like us. As the hymn that we're going to sing to close our service puts it, we have to turn our eyes upon Jesus by faith and everything else will fade away from sight. Even the, maybe especially the enemies of the cross of Christ and the enemies of God's people. He is mighty to save. He's more than able to use us for his glory in the making of disciples. No matter how things may look, uh, it depends not on our strength, but on God's strength, Christ's strength alone. Well, that brings us to the second thing that we see in the book, and that's the little scroll or the little book. In verse 2, John says that this mighty angel had what? A little scroll open in his hand. Now, first thing I thought was, well, in that hand, any book would look small, but it was a small scroll, a little scroll in his hand. Now, what is that scroll? What is that scroll meant to represent? And notice it's open. Now, this I don't think is the same scroll that we saw back in the earlier chapter, chapter 5 and following. I think this scroll contains the message of God that John was to preach and to prophesy. You could take this as the word of God, the scriptures in general. Or maybe more specifically, the message of the gospel itself found throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. This was the message that that John was to preach. And I think this is the message that we are to preach. Some have said maybe it's chapter 11. It's the next thing in the book. It could be all those things, but it's whatever it was, it was what John was supposed to preach. Now, before this in verse 4, it says that there's a voice of seven thunders. And what, what is, what he's about to write it down, right? He's, oh, because it's not just noise, it's a voice. They're saying words, but it sounds like thunder. He's about to write it down and he's told, no, 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 seal it up. This isn't for anybody else, uh, to know. And this reminds us of, of Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You know, there are many things that the Lord in his mercy and wisdom has not seen fit to reveal to us in this life. A lot of things that we might like to know that God has not seen fit to reveal. You can probably think of a dozen of them just sitting here right now. And God God hasn't pulled the curtain back and given us permission to look over his shoulder, you know, to peek at what he's uh, hasn't revealed. You know, we waste our time and we disrespect the Lord's word and his authority when we try to go beyond that boundary. Why? It says the secret things belong to whom? They're his and his alone. They're none of our business, so to speak. Now, we have no business trying to read God's mind or to peer behind the curtain of God's providence. We have no business, for example, trying to figure out the day or the hour of Christ's return. How many cults, and at one, and at one time, decent Bible teachers have gone astray into doing just that? You think of the ministry of Harold Camping. One time, a terrific Bible uh, teacher 
And at one point, I've lost track of how many times he kept picking dates against the explicit warning of Scripture not to do so. The Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the first things they did was pick a date. And then when it didn't happen, they redefined the coming and changed all kinds of doctrines. Uh, and it's nothing but a cult. That's what cults do. Cults go beyond what God has revealed. Cult leaders do the same thing. They say God, they, they say it in different words, God told me X, Y, and Z. Follow me. Not trying to rhyme, but, uh, you know, if, if someone, anybody in this pulpit or any other church you happen to go to, if any pastor or teacher stands before you and says, God told me such and such, and the next thing out of their mouth isn't in Isaiah chapter you know, 5 or something like that, if they don't say in the scriptures, disregard what they're saying and find a new church. Do not listen to such a person. That is what cults do. That's not what teachers of God's word do. We don't have any business looking into things that God has not revealed. But there is something that is given to us. What does it say? Uh, what, what does belong to us? We find the things that are revealed, he says, those things belong to us and to our children forever. And what's the purpose of it? That we may do all the words of his law. He has told us what he wants from us. He told us what he, what he wants us to believe, to be saved. He's told us how he wants us to live, to glorify him. And that's what we should spend our time doing. And so in the light of the majesty of the glorified Christ, in, the, in light of the oath he takes in our chapter, where he says there was going to be no more delay, but when that seventh angel blows his trumpet, quote, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, you know, when all of God's purposes were going to be fulfilled and finished, when Christ returns in glory to the judge, the living and the dead. In light of all that, what are we to do? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, and that brings us to the third and the final point in our chapter, uh, the divine commission. We've seen the mighty angel, the, the little book, now the divine commission. What is John commanded to do with that scroll? Look at verses 8 to 9. It says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him, I said to him, to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. When I was thinking about this, I thought, John's a much braver man than I am. If I saw this you know, amazing vision of, of the glorified Christ standing on sea and on land, I don't think I'd have the guts to walk up. Oh, but God told him to do it, so he did. And what was he told to do? Maybe if he knew the book of Ezekiel, it wouldn't have shocked him. Maybe it didn't. But it's not what you and I would expect him to say, unless you knew your Old Testament. He says, take it and eat it. And that word for eat is really the word devour. Like, don't leave a speck of it on the plate, so to speak. Devour this whole thing. Eat the whole thing. Of course, that's what Ezekiel was told to do back in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. He also was told to eat a scroll that had writing on the front and on the back, and it would be sweet as honey in his mouth. Same thing that John is told here. And what Ezekiel was called to do is the same thing John is called to do, and it's really the same thing that the church in every age is called to do, and that's speak God's words to the people. Speak, devour, consume God's words, and speak not our words, but God's words to the people. John, like Ezekiel, was to devour or consume the whole message of God, and then he was to proclaim it. 
Now, the Word of God is often spoken of in the Scriptures as being sweet to the believer. Uh, Psalm 19.10, David says, God's law and his rules are, quote, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's Word is sweet to a believer's ear. There's a hymn that says that. The Lord Jesus also, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. In fact, that's the, that's the, that according to Christ and according to Deuteronomy 8, that was the lesson of the manna. The manna that came from heaven, their actual bread from heaven that they ate, was meant to teach them to trust in God's word and live by God's word. The manna was a test, and it was meant to teach that. And so I asked this morning, do you have a hunger for the word of God? Do you have a hunger for the word of God? Or do you think you've already learned enough? Have you checked that box? That You know, there's a book, I forget what it's actually titled, something like, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Third Grade, or something like that. Uh, is that how we treat the Bible? You know, well, I went to Awana, I went to Sunday school when I was little, I've learned everything I have to learn, I, I'm good. I hope you don't approach food that way. You need to eat, well, you need God's Word even more than you need to eat. Do, you, do we delight in God's word and meditate upon it. Think about it day and night, as David says in Psalm 1. David was the king. You know, if I'm the king, I'm going to pay somebody else to do that. You know, David David himself delighted in God's law, his law, and meditated in it day and night. Have we, have we thought ourselves to be done with diligent study and reading of God's word? I hope... That is not the case. I hope that we, if you don't have a hunger for God's word, pray that God works that in you and renews that. Maybe you used to. Maybe you used to find yourself studying God's word constantly. If you've lost your appetite for it, pray that God might renew it, that might, God might put it upon your heart to have a delight in his word and meditate in it day and night. The commission to John was to eat and prophesy or preach, uh, it's also given through him, I think, to the church militant, even to us. It's not just for John to preach and to meditate upon God's word. We also must take, and he, you know, Augustine in his confessions talks about his conversion and the phrase, I won't go into the Latin, but the phrase that he said he heard a little child saying, take and read. And what did he find? A Bible. And he read the scriptures and was converted. Well, we are to take and eat and preach. That's the message that John is given, and we are given through John. We are to, to uh, take and eat so that our thoughts, our words, and our lives are more and more conformed to God's word, that his words might be our words. Then you and I will be equipped to take the words of life that are found in the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world, to our neighbors all around us. And that little book, which seems so small in the eyes of the unbelieving world, and frankly, that little book seems small in the minds of many who call themselves ministers as well. They think other things are much more effective and powerful, and so they don't just preach the unadorned word of God. Those things will seem to be, you know, when you, when you take the word of life to your neighbors, those things will be seen to wield the almighty power of God, even of the mighty angel. That's, that's the point. Where did he get the scroll from? That mighty angel, what's he supposed to do? Eat it? And proclaim it. What power are we supposed to view from this, this vision? What's the power behind the word? The glorified Christ, the one who's almighty and rules over all things. That's, that's the point of this vision.
When you have a bigger vision of Christ, when you turn your eyes upon upon the Lord Jesus and have faith in his word, when you share his word, you'll know that his power will be at work again. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel, because it is the word of God, is what God uses mightily to save sinners. No program, no other thing that we come up with will ever convert a single soul. We'll never call a dead soul to life and repentance and faith, but the gospel does that because it's God's word and the Holy Spirit works through it. One writer has said, I forget who it was, but he he sort of <clears throat> explains this gospel being the power of God as, puts it in a, in a different way, he says, the gospel is the omnipotence of God at work unto salvation. That's a good way to put it. May God give you and I the faith to turn our eyes upon Jesus, even to this uh, vision described in our text, and faithfully hold forth the word of life to our neighbors, trusting that God, the Almighty God, will work mightily to save the lost, no matter how the gates of hell try to prevail against it and persecute his church. Amen.